You're listening to a podcast by Redeemer Bible Church. Come visit us Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. or visit our website at redeemerfortbend.org for more information. Thanks and enjoy. On September 8th, Queen Elizabeth II died, and immediately from every corner of the globe, responses began pouring in. Uh, Some from friendly countries, some from unfriendly countries, all offering glowing tributes to the Queen's leadership. Because that's what happens in our world when somebody famous dies, a flood of positive reactions. Well, today as we continue in Matthew's Gospel, we're going to see a variety of reactions to another death, to the death of Jesus. And that's what we're going to see today in Matthew chapter 27, verses 51 through 66. And today we're going to see four such responses. First, we're going to see how God responds to the death of Jesus. Second, we're going to see how the executioners respond to the death of Jesus. Third, we're going to see how Jesus' disciples respond to the death of Jesus, and last, we'll see how Jesus' enemies respond to the death of Jesus. So, without further ado, let's begin with our first point, which is God's response to the death of Jesus. Last week, we saw the end of Jesus' earthly life, and we saw the staggering cruelty of that death as he was mocked and scourged and crucified. And as we consider all of the brutality that Jesus endured, I think it's really easy for us to ask, where is God in the middle of all of this? After all, we've seen twice in this book that God the Father has spoken from heaven, declaring about Jesus, this is my beloved Son, with whom I'm well pleased. God loves Jesus. And yet, here is Jesus, subjected to all of this evil and injustice. And we might think, well, hey, why doesn't God intervene to deliver Jesus? Just like we might expect that God should intervene in our lives when we encounter really terrible situations. Or that he should intervene in the middle of really terrible situations that we see in the news. There's a school shooting at a church this week, right? And we might say, where is God? And yet, despite our expectations that God might intervene and shut evil down before it harms those who belong to him, at times it seems that evil reigns, right? Sometimes it seems that God is nowhere to be found. And to be sure, on the day when Jesus died, at first that appeared to be one such day. But friends, the truth is that in the midst of Jesus' crucifixion, And in the midst of the worst events in our world, and in the midst of the worst events of our lives, God has not gone anywhere. He is right where He always is, right where He always has been, and right where He always will be. He is on the throne. And we need to know today that God is not a passive spectator to what goes on in this world. No, friends, God is powerful and He is involved. He is at work in our world, even when we can't understand what he's doing. And friends, God was at work 2,000 years ago as Jesus hung on the cross. To paraphrase Genesis 50, what the people in Matthew's gospel meant for evil, God meant for good. Because the awful and unjust murder of the sinless Son of God is the one and only means by which God brings many sons and daughters to glory. But you might say, well, how do I know that God was really at work as Jesus was being crucified? Well, we saw a number of indirect evidences that God was at work during the crucifixion last week. But this morning, I want to focus on a number of supernatural events that occur as Jesus is on the cross or immediately after his death that further reveal that God is involved in the death of Jesus, that he is working out his good purposes even at Calvary. And we're going to see this morning that some of these supernatural events help us to understand the significance of Jesus' death and why Jesus' death was the eternal plan and purpose of God. Now, we saw last week 
that about three hours into Jesus' crucifixion, supernatural events began to take place. Matthew chapter 27, verse 45 says, Now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. Now the sixth hour was noon, and so at noontime, an eerie, a natural darkness settled over the land. And we said last week that the Old Testament sometimes talks about supernatural occurrences of darkness, usually in the context of God judging sin. So Zephaniah chapter 114 says, The great day of the Lord is near. A day of wrath is that day, a day of darkness and gloom. Or Amos chapter 8 verse 9, On that day, declares the Lord God, I will make the sun go down at noon. And darken the earth in broad daylight. God judges sin as he brings this darkness. But he doesn't judge sin in the way we might, we, that we might expect. We might expect that God will judge the evildoers who are torturing his son. And yet instead, God acts to judge sin in the person of his son. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake... God made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. In some way we cannot fully understand, on the cross, Jesus, the sinless one, became sin. And God poured the full measure of his wrath upon Jesus, the wrath that should have fallen upon you and me. Galatians 3.13 says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. And as God's curse falls on Jesus, the sky turns dark. But after bearing the Father's wrath for three hours, Jesus' work is now complete. Matthew 27 verse 50 says, Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. But as Jesus dies, now the Father increasingly makes his presence felt through even more supernatural occurrences. Look at verse 51. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Now Matthew describes an event that took place back in Jerusalem at the temple as he says its curtain was torn. What's he talking about? Well, this curtain was a symbol of an important principle that governed the operation of the temple. The principle of limited access. You see, access to various parts of the temple complex was restricted based on who you were. So if you were a disabled Jew or a Gentile, you were restricted to a courtyard very far removed from the temple building. If you were a Jewish woman, you were allowed one courtyard closer. If you were a Jewish man, you were allowed still one courtyard closer than that. But only the Levitical priests were allowed in the innermost courtyard or in the temple building itself. Now inside the building, this idea of limited access continued. The temple building was divided into two rooms. There was one large room that was maintained by the priests called the Holy Place, and one smaller room called the Most Holy Place, or the Holy of Holies. And these two rooms were divided by a curtain, which is described in Exodus 26, verse 31. You shall make a veil of blue and purple and scarlet yarns and finely twined linen. It shall be made with cherubim, angels, skillfully worked into it. Now, the priests were not allowed to pass through this curtain. They were not allowed to enter the most holy place. And that was because centuries earlier, the most holy place was a very special place on earth. In those days, the Ark of the Covenant sat in the most holy place. And on the Ark sat a lid. And on the lid sat the mercy seat. The place where God said in Exodus 25, There I will meet with you from above the mercy seat. That is to say... That in this room, the most holy place, God uniquely manifested his presence on the earth. And for that reason, the priests could not enter into it. To enter into the unveiled presence of God, 
would be to invite immediate death, right? But the law prescribed that once a year, on the most important Jewish religious holiday, the great day of atonement, the high priest alone could enter through that curtain, but only under certain conditions. Leviticus 16 verse 12 says, He shall take a censer, uh, it's an object that you put coals into to produce incense smoke. He shall take a censer full of coals of fire from the altar before the Lord, and he shall bring it inside the veil and put the incense on the fire before the Lord, that the cloud of incense may cover the mercy seat so that he does not die. And he shall take some of the blood of the bull and sprinkle it with his finger on the mercy seat. The high priest could only approach if the most holy place was filled with smoke so that even he wouldn't just be struck dead by the presence of God. And he had to bring the blood of a sacrifice that covered his own sin. And that is how the most holy place worked. Now, by the time of the first century, the most holy place sat empty. The Ark of the Covenant had been lost centuries earlier. God's presence had departed the temple during the days of Ezekiel. But still the forms were observed. Still, the most holy place was inaccessible except on this one day a year to this high priest. And the symbol of all of this limited access in the temple was the curtain. But now, as Jesus dies, the curtain is torn. And it isn't like yanked from the bottom. It splits from the top down. God himself destroys the curtain. And you say, well, what does that mean? I think there's two answers. First is an answer that gives some bad news. Bad news to the priests. Because after all, they're the ones in the temple building. They're the ones who would have seen the miracle. And for them, this is a sign of judgment. A judgment Jesus had warned them about. In chapters 21 and 22, Jesus had told parable after parable warning the religious authorities of Israel that murdering the Son of God would lead to destruction. In chapter 24, he told his disciples about the temple, Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that is not thrown down. But these religious leaders, despite the warnings, conspired and achieved the death of Jesus. So judgment is coming. It's coming on Jerusalem. It's coming on the temple. It's coming on the priests. Destruction is coming. But there's a second answer as to what this tearing of the curtain means. And this is great news for those of us who believe. Jesus said back in chapter 5, verse 17, Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Matthew has shown us again and again in this book, Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. And now here we are at the temple, the seat, the very heart of the old order, where the priesthood is, where the sacrifices are. And now as Jesus dies, he brings the old system to its conclusion. It stands fulfilled. And the temple veil is torn. It is a sign that the old has passed away. And in its place, a new relationship between God and man is inaugurated. The new covenant that Jesus talked about at his last supper which would be established, he said, as his blood was poured out. And this new covenant brings a new relationship between God and man. And friends, this is great news for us. Because no longer is the principle limited access to God. Instead, God said in Jeremiah 31, this is what the new covenant would entail. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. Friends, a direct personal relationship with God has been inaugurated. It has been made available, not mediated through the Levitical priests or the sacrificial system, not dependent on your ethnicity or your sex. No, the author to the Hebrews writes in Hebrews 9.11, Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come. It through, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. 
See, the temple on earth is just a pattern of God's own throne room in heaven. And what we're told is Jesus is a high priest there. And he doesn't approach the Father like the Jewish high priests of old bringing animal blood. No, he approaches the Father on the basis of his own sacrifice, a far greater sacrifice, a sacrifice that secures eternal redemption. And he is our new and better high priest. In fact, Hebrews 6.19 says, We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that goes into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever. Now, the, the old high priest, he went in once a day, you know, once a year on one day. Jesus stands in the very presence of God that is behind the curtain, not one day a year, but forever. He grounds our hope and our access to God. Hebrews 10.19 says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that He has opened for us through the curtain, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith. Because of the death of Jesus, we all can directly approach God Himself. Jesus has allowed us to directly access the Father. And in Christ, we believers have all become priests, able to approach Him on our own without any human intermediation other than Jesus. And so Hebrews 4.16 says, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Friends, we can go to God and put our prayers to Him directly because we have this access. And so I hope that you can see we have a lot better situation today than the saints of the Old Testament did, right? Amen? Because we have access to God directly. And so the tearing of the temple curtain symbolizes all of those benefits that Jesus has won for us by establishing the new covenant. But now we find a second supernatural event. Look at verse 51. And the earth shook, and the rocks were split. The tombs also were opened. As Jesus dies, a massive earthquake strikes Jerusalem, yet another judgment. Because Jerusalem would not receive Jesus, they refused to be gathered to him, as a hen gathers her chicks, because they cried out for his blood and called down God's judgment on themselves. But now a third supernatural event is described, verse 52. And many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. What is going on here? Well, to understand these verses, we've got to ask a few questions. First, who are the saints referred to in verse 52? In the New Testament, when this term saints is used, almost always it's referring simply to ordinary believers in Jesus, not like super-duper Christians from the past, like Catholics claim, but just ordinary believers. But, but here we find this word used to refer to people who lived before Jesus. So they were not Christians because they lived before there was any Christianity. Who are these saints? Well, these seem to be Israelites who died in faith, who had trusted themselves to God's Old Testament revelation. Now, I don't think Matthew here is talking about every saint from the Old Testament being raised in this event. If for no other reason, then he seems to be talking about people who were buried near Jerusalem being raised. So this is not a general resurrection of Old Testament saints. It is a limited resurrection of some of them. Perhaps they were the patriarchs or kings or prophets or more recent martyrs. But whoever they were, we're not told, they now arise from the dead. But this leads to a second question. What does Matthew mean when he says they rise from the dead? Were they resuscitated temporarily, like Lazarus? Or are they now glorified in the way that Jesus is about to be glorified, with a resurrection body? This is a more difficult question because so little is said here. But if we understand the saints to be more famous Old Testament believers, then I think we have to expect that God here is doing a pretty substantial creative work to restore life to bodies that had decayed to, to bones and dust in many cases, right? So I think the best explanation is probably to understand that these saints uh, in this miracle received their glorified resurrection bodies at this time. 
I could be wrong about that. I think that's the best explanation. Now, a third question. When did these people rise from the dead? Now, at first, when we read the passage, it seems as though they are raised from the dead immediately after Jesus' death. But there is a problem with this interpretation. In 1 Corinthians 15, the Apostle Paul calls Jesus the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Now, first fruits is a term that comes from the Jewish law, and it spoke about the harvest. And the idea was this. The first part of the, of the harvest was dedicated to God. That was the first fruits. And it guaranteed a gigantic harvest to follow. In the same way, Paul says Jesus was raised first. And because of his first resurrection, we can expect a vast harvest of resurrections to follow. But is Matthew here not saying that these Old Testament saints were raised before Jesus? Is Jesus really the first fruits of the resurrection? Yes, he is. Because while at first it sounds like Matthew's telling us these Old Testament saints were resurrected immediately after Jesus' death, I think a closer reading makes this unlikely. Now, Matthew definitely tells us the earthquake happened immediately after Jesus' death, which opened their tombs. But if we read on, Matthew tells us that they came out of their tombs only after his resurrection. Are we to understand that these saints were raised when Jesus died, and then they sat around in their tombs for two days doing nothing, waiting until Easter morning? What were they doing during that time, right? No, I think a far simpler and better understanding of Matthew's chronology goes like this. Jesus dies, the earthquake happens, the tombs are opened, nothing happens to the Old Testament saints until after Jesus is raised, and then once Jesus is raised, they rise from the dead. Okay, but this leads to a fourth question. Why have they been raised, and what happened to them? Well, we're told that after Jesus rose from the dead, they entered into Jerusalem. They seem to have gone to offer testimony about Jesus, and that we're not told what happened after that. Now, based on the rest of the interpretation I put to you here, I, th I would expect that after their work was done, these glorified saints were translated into heaven, but Matthew doesn't tell us anything more about this. Now, to be sure, this is a strange and controversial incident. What should we learn from it? Friends, the death of Jesus gives life to his people. This is a truth we find elsewhere in the New Testament. Colossians 2.13 says, You who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Romans 6 tells us the wages of sin is death. And friends, we are all born under the sentence of physical death because we are the heirs of fallen Adam, and we are all born spiritually dead, disconnected from God. But because of the death of Jesus, Paul says, God has made us alive together with him. Jesus died the death that we deserved. And so God has canceled the record of spiritual debt that we owed, the debt we could not pay, the infinite debt of guilt before God because of our sin. And how did he cancel it? We're told he nailed it to the cross. That is, the death of Jesus frees us from the debt of death that we owe to God. More than that, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, In him we have been made the righteousness of God. Friends, Jesus doesn't just bear our sin and endure our penalty. Something else happens. What Luther called the great exchange. As Jesus takes his people's sin upon himself, he imputes his perfect righteousness to all who believe. So believing, friends, we can stand before God, not as the wretched sinners we naturally are, not even as people with a clean slate, but we stand before God in the infinite merit of Jesus. That has been credited to our account. And that's why Isaiah can say in Isaiah 53, he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities, upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds were healed. The death of Jesus heals us. It undoes the ruin caused by our sin. It gives us life, newness of life while we're in this body to serve him and the promise of eternal life forevermore. So that's what we see here is that Jesus' death gives life to his people. Now to wrap up this first point, we see here how God responds to the death of Jesus by these supernatural events that signify immense theological changes. 
that show in Christ our sins have been fully paid for, that in Christ we have newness of life in this world, that we have a new and better high priest who has now given us direct access to the Father, and we have certain hope of resurrection life in the new creation. But I want you to see one more thing here, which is that God also demonstrates in these verses that in the death of Jesus, the end of history begins. Daniel 12 says history would end like this. Many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt. The end of history will be characterized by resurrection. What else will characterize the end? Well, in Matthew 24, Jesus prophesied about the end, and he said it would involve supernatural darkness, the destruction of the temple, and earthquakes. And what do we find in our passage? Darkness, the rendering of the temple curtain, earthquakes, and the resurrection of some of the righteous. Friends, the death of Jesus is the end of the world in miniature. Now, of course, we still await the consummation today. But based on what God does here, we can see why the apostles say things like 1 John 2. It is the last hour. Friends, it has been the last hour for 2,000 years. And that is because at Golgotha, God has begun to bring history to its end. So, friends, indeed, God is at work in the death of Jesus, and these supernatural events prove it. But now we come to our second point as we see how Jesus' executioners respond to his death. Last week we saw how the Roman soldiers brutalized Jesus, flogging him, pushing a crown of thorns into his brow, mocking him, hail king of the Jews, and smashing his head with a staff. One detachment of soldiers nailed him to a cross. These Roman soldiers were the most efficient professional killers in world history. They each would have participated in many crucifixions before the death of Jesus. And while crucifixion would be shocking for us to see today, for them, this was a typical day's work. But as Jesus is crucified, they begin to recognize this is no ordinary day, and Jesus is no ordinary person. Usually, those who are crucified would hang on the cross and die in a torrent of undignified anger and obscenity. They would curse their enemies. They would curse their executioners. And we see some of that at Golgotha, right? As the criminals on the other crosses are filled with reviling, they even revile Jesus, verse 44 of our chapter says. But how did Jesus conduct himself on the cross? Did he curse his executioners? Luke 23 tells us he prayed, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. As the Sanhedrin stood there mocking him, did he revile them back? 1 Peter 2 says, when he reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. And Jesus' conduct left quite the impression upon one of the criminals who repented and asked Jesus for mercy, and it left an impression on the executioners. But not only were they astonished by Jesus' conduct, they were astonished by the supernatural things that took place as Jesus died. The darkness and the earthquake. They'd never seen anything like that before, right? And so we read in verse 54, When the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, Truly, this was the Son of God. Now what did they mean? At first, we might think that they are exercising saving faith in Jesus, and that's possible. But I don't think that's necessarily how Matthew intends us to, to, to understand this. Instead, consider that the Romans liked to move soldiers far from home to police other, more distant lands. So these soldiers are not monotheistic Jews. They're likely Gentile pagans, and they're probably polytheists. Now, for many polytheists in the ancient Mediterranean world, the language son of God would make them think of mythological figures like Hercules, who are half God and half man. They would not be thinking what we are thinking when we say that Jesus is the son of God, because we confess that Jesus is God, the eternal son incarnate, that he is fully God, truly God, and truly man. In the same way, we don't know how much these executioners knew about Jesus his preaching, his claims to deity, his demand to repent and believe in him. So I think it's probably an overstatement to say here the executioners are exercising saving faith. But I think this is what we can say. As they watched Jesus on the cross, they would have heard the scorn of the mockers. 
And verses 40 and 43 tell us the mockers scorn Jesus' claims to be the Son of God. The soldiers would have heard that. And observing Jesus' conduct and seeing these unique events taking place around them, the executioners have come to the understanding that what Jesus said about himself is true and that what the mockers' position is is false. Jesus is not a criminal. Jesus' death is not justice. That as Luke records the centurion saying in Luke 23, 47, certainly this was a righteous man. And so what we see here is that just moments after his death, Jesus is already beginning to be vindicated. And that vindication will continue on Sunday morning. As Jesus rises from the dead, as Paul puts it in Romans 1, he was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Friends, Jesus is who he claimed to be. He is the Messiah. He is the Son of God. And Matthew wants us to understand that. And that's, I think, why so many times in this book he's drawn our attention to this phrase, Son of God. In chapters 3 and 16, the Father declares Jesus to be his Son. In chapter 4, Satan admits Jesus is God's Son. In chapter 8, the demons acknowledge Jesus is God's Son. In chapter 14, the disciples venerate Jesus as God's Son. In chapter 16, Peter confesses Jesus as God's Son. We saw last week the mockers unwittingly offer testimony that Jesus is God's son. And now in the final word spoken at Golgotha, the chief executioner pronounces Jesus to be God's son. And what Matthew wants us to understand here is maybe not the way that the executioners understood the son of God language, but he wants us to know in truth and in full, Jesus is the son of God. He is truly God and he is truly man. But I also want you to see here, that we find this confession now on the lips of a Gentile. This foreshadows where things are going to go. But the spiritual realm already knew who Jesus was. And in this book, we've seen that some Jews knew who Jesus was. But now, as history proceeds, the gospel is going to spread among the Gentiles. And we're going to see that more in a few weeks. But Gentiles are going to begin to acknowledge Jesus is the Son of God. But as we sit here today, my question for you is, do you acknowledge that Jesus is the Son of God. Do you understand what that means? That He is truly God and has the right to reign over us. That He is truly man and can die as the sacrifice for our sins. Do you believe that? Or like the scornful people at Golgotha, do you mock that claim and scorn Him as His enemies did? Well, as we continue further now, we find some people who did believe Jesus was the Son of God in our third point, as we see now how Jesus' disciples respond to His death. Up to this point, everybody at Golgotha has been described as being antagonistic to Jesus. The soldiers, the passers-by, the Sanhedrin, the criminals. But now we find some people there who were not mocking Jesus. Look at verse 55. There were also some women there looking on from a distance who had followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to him, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James and Joseph and the mother of the sons of Zebedee. Throughout much of this book, Jesus' interaction with the twelve has been described to us. But now we learn that actually Jesus' ministry involved more than just the twelve. The twelve were the inner circle of the ministry, but there were other people who followed Jesus too, including this group of women. Luke 8 tells us about the role of these women in Jesus' ministry. Luke 8.3 says they provided for them out of their means. That is, these ladies played a vital support role for Jesus' ministry. They generously gave money to make sure that Jesus and his disciples were fed and could devote themselves to ministry. But these ladies weren't the type who simply wrote a check and remained personally disconnected. No, they have followed Jesus to Jerusalem on his final journey. And now we see they followed him even to Golgotha. And this is quite remarkable. Because where are the twelve? Judas is dead. The rest have run. John's gospel says John returned to stand at the foot of the cross, but the rest are absent. And yes, they will reassemble before Easter morning, but here it is these ladies who exemplify discipleship, following Jesus right up to the end. But Jesus' death also reveals some other surprising disciples. Look at verse 57. When it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who also was a disciple of Jesus. Mark and Luke tell us Joseph here was a member of the Sanhedrin. 
But Luke says, he had not consented to their decision and action. Joseph had not voted to condemn Jesus. And yet up until now, the fact that he was a disciple of Jesus had remained a secret, John's Gospel tells us, because he was afraid of his colleagues. But now Jesus' death emboldens Joseph to publicly associate himself with Jesus. Look at verse 58. And he went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Now usually the Romans did not bury the victims of crucifixion. Throughout the ancient world, usually they were left on their crosses uh, to remind passersby this is the price of what it means to oppose Rome. But in Judea, things were different. Because Deuteronomy 21 says, If any man has committed a crime punishable by death, and he's put to death, and you hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him the same day. For a hanged man is cursed by God. You shall not defile your land the Lord is, your God is giving you for an inheritance. And the Jews applied this Old Testament law to crucifixion. And so they insisted that the dead should come down from their crosses at night. And Josephus records that the Romans accommodated that religious sensibility. And so as night approaches, Joseph comes to claim the body of Jesus for burial. Verse 58. Then Pilate ordered it to be given to him, and Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen shroud. Joseph wants to give Jesus a dignified burial. But there's not much time. It's almost sundown, and then it would be Sabbath, and then burying the dead would be illegal. So he has to work quickly. Some traditions, like anointing the body with oil, cannot be performed. There isn't enough time. Other customs are observed. And at this point, another member of the Sanhedrin, who was a secret disciple of Jesus, Nicodemus, reveals his allegiance as he assists Joseph in the burial preparations. John 19.39 says, Nicodemus also came, bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. And having prepared the body in this way, Joseph, according to Matthew 27, 60, laid it in his own new tomb, which he had cut in the rock. Now here we begin to get details that are going to be really significant as we consider the resurrection narrative next week. Joseph's tomb is no cave with multiple entrances. No, this is solid rock, which has been excavated as a tomb. There's only one way in or out. Verse 60 says, And he rolled a great stone to the entrance of the tomb and went away. Now tombs in this era were often constructed like this. There would be a door, and in front of it there would be some kind of groove in the ground, and rock would be slid into the groove. And that would basically make sure the rock was wedged in place. And that would secure the, grave from to, or the tomb from grave robbers. To enter the tomb then, not only would you have to have enough force to push this large rock out of the way, but if it is grooved like many tombs in that day were, you'd have to actually push it up from the ground before you could, could push it out of the way. This would take a lot of force to open. The tomb was well and truly shut. And at this point, Isaiah's prophecy was fulfilled. They made his grave with the wicked, and he was with a rich man in his death. Jesus died a criminal and yet his grave was a rich man's tomb. And having entombed Jesus, Joseph and Nicodemus leave, imagining that Jesus' story is over. But some of the disciples still cannot bring themselves to leave Jesus. Look at verse 61. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were there, sitting opposite the tomb. Even after everybody else has left, these two women sit outside the tomb, mourning probably until the Sabbath began. And it's important that we know these two women saw Jesus buried. Because on Sunday morning, they are the two that are going to discover the tomb empty. So Matthew makes it clear to us, they knew where the tomb was. They didn't get lost or confused. They saw Jesus buried. They had spent significant time at the location. They knew where they were going. And when they got there on Easter morning, it was empty. All right, but what should we take from this point? I think in these verses we see three defining characteristics of true disciples of Jesus. First, we see here a great love for Jesus. These women follow Jesus to the cross. Two of them follow all the way to the tomb. 
Joseph and Nicodemus served Jesus by burying him in this dignified way. Friends, there is a high regard for the person of Jesus among the disciples in this passage. But there's not often a high regard for the person and name of Jesus among many who claim him today, is there? How often do we take his name on our lips, not to praise him, but to utter an exclamation, saying, Jesus Christ, not to confess him before men, but as a worldly expletive. How often do we consider the Lord Jesus' will and word as we live? Do we care that he has commanded certain things of us, that he has forbidden certain things from us, or do we say, well, you know, I'm okay with Jesus, and he's okay with me, and I can pretty much live however I want. John 14, 15, Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Do our lives show that kind of real, true love for Jesus? True disciples should. Second, we see in these disciples a costly loyalty to Jesus. Associating yourself with a crucified prisoner was a risky venture in the Roman world, especially when he was crucified for saying he was a king and being, you know, and people were saying, oh, he's a rival to Caesar. You go to the cross of Jesus as a friend, it might get you killed. But here are the women standing near the cross of Jesus. They're not afraid to be associated with him. What about Joseph and Nicodemus? Previously, they had been secret disciples. They were afraid to make themselves known. But now at this critical moment, they also want to be counted with Jesus. Friend, are you publicly associated with Jesus? In the New Testament, a public association with Jesus begins with baptism. If you're a believer, have you been baptized? Beyond that, if you claim Jesus to other people around you, know about your faith. Do your family members know you belong to Jesus? Do your friends do your co-workers, do your neighbors? If not, why not? Maybe you're afraid. I can understand that. For most of American history, claiming Christianity was the in thing to do, right? There wasn't any risk attached. Now there is risk. Reputational risk. Employment risk. And this week we've seen the reality of physical risk for Jesus' people in this country. There are many people in our society who hate Jesus and hate his people today. Friends, the warnings Jesus gave in this book are coming true around us. Matthew 10, 21. Brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death, and you will be hated by all for my namesake. But what does Jesus say in Matthew 10, 26? Have no fear of them. Do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both body and soul in hell. Friends, the worst the world can do to us is kill us. But Jesus will raise us up on the last day. Don't fear the world. Fear God and have courage and let people know you stand with Jesus. Jesus says in Matthew 10, 32, Everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. Being known as a follower of Jesus is a mark of true discipleship. But we also see a third thing here, which is great sacrifice for Jesus. The women in this passage gave much money to, to finance Jesus' ministry. They gave much time and energy to serving him. Joseph, in this passage, also makes a very significant sacrifice as he buries Jesus in his own tomb. Ordinarily, you would build a tomb like this, not just to house your own remains, but those of your family. But Pharisaic tradition forbade people from being buried in a tomb alongside a criminal. And so because Jesus has been crucified, by burying him in his own tomb, Joseph is sacrificing his tomb. He's going to have to get another one. And that is going to be a very significant financial sacrifice that he makes to honor Jesus. Now, as we consider the sacrifices these people make for Jesus, I think we've got to ask ourselves, what do we give for Jesus? And maybe you say, oh, he's going to talk about money. Look, I'll tell you this. The Bible does talk about money sometimes. And, and we see examples of that here. What should we financially sacrifice for Jesus? But more than that, in terms of energy, what should we sacrifice for Jesus inside the church and outside of it? In terms of service, what should we do for Jesus? 
What are we willing to sacrifice reputationally for Jesus? What conveniences are we willing to sacrifice for Jesus? The disciples here gave so much because they said Jesus was worth it. Do we make that same judgment? What do we sacrifice for Jesus? But I think with their love and their loyalty and their sacrifice, we see in this third response to Jesus a great example of true discipleship. But we come now to our last point, and here we see Jesus' enemies respond to his death. We've said in previous weeks, ultimately Jesus died because that was the eternal plan of God. And indeed, all of our sins put Jesus on the cross. And yet, from an earthly perspective, the Jewish religious leaders certainly had set the murder of Jesus into motion. So now let's focus on them. Having succeeded in their plan, what now is their response? Well, they think they've won. And they want to make sure to preserve their victory. Look at verse 62. The next day, that is after the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, we remember how that imposter said while he was still alive, After three days I will rise. Therefore order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people he is risen from the dead. And the last fraud will be worse than the first. Now, in the weeks leading up to his death, Jesus prophesied on at least four different occasions that he was going to rise from the dead on the third day. He told the disciples this again and again. But they were totally oblivious. They didn't take Jesus literally when he said these things. So they were shocked when they happened. But the religious leaders were worried about Jesus' prophecy. Now, we might wonder, how did they know about this prophecy since Jesus had been giving these predictions of his resurrection to his disciples? Well, much earlier in this book, Jesus did give a prophecy to the religious leaders. Matthew 12, verse 40. Just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And it seems that the religious leaders remembered this. And they understood it better than Jesus' disciples had understood his recent prophecies about his resurrection. Isn't that a sad irony? The religious leaders get it, and the disciples don't. But they have overestimated the disciples' understanding of these things. And once more, they have underestimated Jesus. It never enters their minds he might actually come back from the dead. But having killed him, they really want to make sure they're done with him. And so they ask Pilate to grant them a guard of soldiers to secure his tomb. And they ask for this guard for three days. Long enough to show that Jesus' prophecy was false. Presumably on the third day, they would open the tomb and bring out the body and say, See, Jesus was a false prophet. Don't have to think about him anymore. So here's what happens. Verse 65. Pilate said to them, You have a guard of soldiers. Go make it as secure as you can. And so they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. Seems that Pilate grants them some Roman soldiers who go out to the tomb. Of course, the first thing they would do there is make sure that the body was still in the tomb. That was the whole point of the exercise, right? And having done so, they secured it. They placed a seal on the stone, a seal that denoted the authority of Pilate and Rome. To open this seal would be to incur Rome's wrath. And to ensure that the tomb wasn't disturbed, these soldiers stood watch to make sure that stone wasn't going to be rolled away. And at this point, the Jewish religious authorities must have imagined that they had won. They had beaten Jesus. Their victory is complete, right? Wrong. Because there's just one problem. You cannot win victory over God and his anointed. As Psalm 2 says the whole world wants to achieve that. Elites want to be free from the reign of God and Christ. Our society longs to be free from God and Christ. People who murder Christians want to be free from God and Christ. But Psalm 2 says, he who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Friends, God doesn't lose. He wins. And he wins by installing his king in the place of total authority. And even though there are Roman guards there and a seal there, on Sunday morning that stone's going to roll away. And Jesus is going to stroll on out. And he is going to say to his disciples, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Friends, there are so many people today who think history is on our side. 
And eventually, we'll get rid of Christianity. And eventually, the sands of time will cover the name of Jesus. Friends, they are wrong. Because what actually will happen, according to Philippians 2, is that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And so to conclude today, we've seen some responses to the death of Jesus. We've seen God's response with powerful miracles that speak of important theological truths. And we've seen some human responses too. But I want to ask you now, how do you respond to the death of Jesus? Are you going to respond today like the Jewish religious authorities did? Hating Jesus, thinking, oh, this is a problem that will go away. Our society's changing, you know. Just have to wait a while and things will be enlightened. Friends, the world's been waiting for 2,000 years to be rid of Jesus, and it's going to keep on waiting. And all that waiting will prove futile because no philosophy... No religion and no persecution can unseat the reign of Jesus. He is Lord. And we will all stand before him and give an account. And if you hate Jesus, beware. Because his wrath is real and it is coming for his adversaries. But perhaps today you're like the centurion. You say, well, Jesus is an important figure, a righteous figure even. But maybe you don't really understand who he is or why he matters or why he came. And friend, if that's you today, I want to say to you clearly, Jesus is God who became man, who came to rescue you from eternal condemnation because of your sins. Jesus died on the cross, taking our sins upon himself, suffering the judgment due our evil. And he has risen from death. He is Lord of all. And today he offers salvation to everyone who turns away from their old life of sin by trusting in him and his finished work as the only ground of our salvation. That's what it really means to confess Jesus is the Son of God. And I pray today that would be you. But maybe today you have trusted Jesus. And if that's you, I want you to examine yourself. Does your life match your claim? Test yourself against the things we see in this passage. The love and the loyalty and the sacrifice the disciples display. And friends, I I would urge you and I urge myself, we must increasingly demonstrate these things for our Savior because He is worthy. He is worthy of all we are and all we have. And so Jude 25 says, To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, now and forever.